Hi, this is John Leahy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing. On the major platforms like Apple and Spotify, we come out with brand new episodes every Wednesday with refreshing content. So I thank you for your support. And again, you're listening to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. And I encourage you to subscribe. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. I'm John Leahy. Thanks again for being with us here on the podcast. I want to give a shout-out to my guest from last week, my good friend Tim Posguy, former broadcast colleague in the New York Penn League of Professional Baseball. We had a chance to go back last week and reminisce about uh, that great baseball league, which we were a part of. Uh, fun times. I wish we could bring those times back. But I want to thank Tim for being with us last week. And if you'd like to check out any of the episodes we've done, uh, I invite you to check out the podcasting website we have at LeahyStorytelling.com. That's L-E-A-H-Y Storytelling.com. All the episodes we've done are there. Uh, you can leave a voicemail. Uh, you can also leave a rating of zero to five stars or perhaps your own written rating. Uh, there's a blog up there. There's also some videos and uh, always striving to make that uh, a good experience for our audience. So please feel free to check that out. Also, uh, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast if you'd like. Uh, we're on the two big ones, Apple and Spotify, and uh, we have new content every Wednesday. Well, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that uh, I've been involved in a, a special series about looking at classic NHL arenas. And uh, my guest this week is uh, Chuck Caton, of course, the former voice of the Hartford Whalers and the Carolina Hurricanes. Chuck has been kind enough to be with us for the first two installments. We're going to finish up this three-part series today and uh chuck as always it's great having you here thank you john uh it's uh, great to be with you and i know uh the listeners enjoy all of your podcasts because uh you're kind of a renaissance guy i guess you do all the sports and uh cover them at all levels, so it's, it's an honor for me to be on the program with you. Well, Chuck, it's, uh, it certainly is uh, a great, great thrill for me as well. And uh, before we get started with the arenas, Chuck, I, I just got to say that what a time it is for the state of Connecticut right now. Uh, two two collegiate champions within a span of five days. UConn wins the uh, basketball championship, and then Quinnipiac, five days later, wins the NCAA hockey tournament 10 seconds into overtime. Great to be a Connecticut fan these days. I think so, and, and my heart is certainly there, as uh, you know, and some of our listeners may not know, that we lived there for 18 years uh, when you said that uh, I uh, had uh, broadcast the Hartford Oiler games, and they were tremendous years uh, where our uh, three boys grew up, played sports. So, yeah, I'm very proud to say that uh, uh, there are some, even some North Carolina ties, basically, indirectly and directly to uh, uh, the wins by UConn and Quinnipiac. Of course, Danny Hurley is uh, Bobby Hurley's brother. Bobby, of course, played at Duke and uh, 
Uh, and, and then Rod Brendamore's son, Skyler, part of that uh, Quinnipiac Bobcat team that just won the national championship in hockey. And uh, Rand Pecknold, uh, who has been there for close to 30 years now, I remember when he started that program. We were still there wow. uh, before we moved to North Carolina. It was a Division II program for the first couple of years, as you know. And then he, he's built a tremendous program, and uh, I, I really uh, was uh, happy to see Rod's son, Skyler, uh, uh, lift that trophy. And maybe it's going to be a portent of what his dad will do in about two and a half months. You never know. Yeah, and, uh, you know, of course, they knocked Merrimack, my team, out of the uh, tournament. So if you want to get beat, right, you want to get beat by the best. And uh, they well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that's something both of us have in common. Because, as people know, I used to do University of Michigan hockey. So <laughs> I guess I'm joining your club of uh, losers. Uh, I say that uh, <laughs> kindly because we both lost to the Bobcats. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chuck, we have a few more arenas to get to here. Uh, uh, we're going to finish up the list, uh, last of a three-part episode. Since the Frozen Four was in Tampa, Chuck, why don't we start there? Start there? Uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning, of course, they play in Amelie Arena, but it wasn't always the case that the Lightning played in uh, top-notch facilities, right? I believe they played. In the, at the Florida County Fairgrounds at one point, right? Oh, yes, they did. And that was followed by where the Tampa Bay Rays now play in St. Petersburg at the, right. what they used to call the Thunderdome back when uh, the Lightning played there. Can you imagine a baseball stadium housing hockey? Well, it, it happens in the Winter Classic, I know, in the NHL, but that's an aberration. But uh, the Lightning had to play. But that Fairgrounds was completely... Uh, well, let's put it this way. It was completely unique. Uh, I don't think another team has ever played in a three or 4,000-seat arena uh, of that type until you, of course, count the Arizona Coyotes of today. So I guess nothing much changes. Um, they're in a college facility. But the fairgrounds facility was basically like the Cow Palace in San Jose, John. It was not built for hockey, hence uh, – uh, my biggest memory there was Brian Burke was our general manager that year when the Lightning joined the NHL in the 92-93 season. And when we played an exhibition game there, uh, that was my first taste. Uh, and the power went out. It was a 90-degree day. They overloaded the power uh, in the building. Lights went out during the warm-up. I was in the middle of doing a pregame interview with Brian Burke, who, as I say, was the Whalers general manager at the time. And so we're thinking, what's going on here? And then the lights finally come up, uh, we do the game. But the most vivid memory I had, other than that, was that the guys had to do their sticks outside. There wasn't even room in the uh, building for them to uh, doctor their sticks up, you know, put their tape on. And uh, and they were doing it in 90-degree weather outside the building, which was, uh, wow. again, uh, a very interesting proposition. Right. Uh, but uh, you, I guess, um, you know, Tampa, a lot of people have, have good memories of, of, you know, that area and, and that, the arena they play now. Uh, any particular good memories when you went down there with the Hurricanes? Well, yeah, I mean, that transition, uh, I, I'll just touch a little bit on the Thunderdome uh, in St. Pete. Uh, we, uh, if people d uh, don't realize the geography, that's still about 15 to 20 miles from Tampa proper. So when we had to cross the bridge to go into St. Petersburg to, to play in that baseball stadium, and, of course, there was no baseball team. They were hoping right. to lure the Chicago White Sox, if you'll remember, John. So they built that, much like Nashville building Bridgestone Arena, they built that building hoping they could draw a franchise. And, of course, in Nashville's case, they got an expansion uh, franchise and did not get the New Jersey Devils as they originally had planned. 
But in this case, there was no baseball team playing there at the time before the Rays came into Major League Baseball. So if you can imagine going from third base to right field, that's how they aligned the ice surface there. Wow. Uh, and, it, and we were in the press box on the first base side, so far away in the back of the stands that we almost had that same perspective that I think I told you about when we talked about that Cow Palace venue in San Jose that you're yeah. very familiar with, yep. the listeners would know. You were out there. So uh, it was the same type of perspective. But you asked me about the new arena. The new arena was terrific um, from a press box location standpoint. And I think from a fan's perspective as well, they have an outside courtyard where they uh, can have events. The Phil Esposito uh, statue is out there now. Of course, he was the founder of the team uh, when they came into the league um, with a lot of uh, foreign money. Uh, at the time, the Japanese money that he uh, was able to glean to get the franchise. But that arena, the the one big memory for me in that arena was uh, with about uh, uh, 30, 40 seconds left in the game, uh, we had uh, an ill goaltender uh, that uh, we only had one goaltender, uh, and, and our backup goaltender was George Alvis, who had played a little bit in the uh, East Coast Hockey League, but he was one of our uh, stick people and one of our equipment uh, assistant equipment managers. He assisted uh, Skip Cunningham for years, uh, a few years in Raleigh, and he also was a goaltender. And also, he would be a practice goalie uh, sometimes when one of the regular goalies didn't, uh, for some reason, want to take uh, a practice tilt if they were hurt or something under the weather. So George was very well equipped, and he was on this trip. So Bill Peters, the coach of the Hurricanes at the time. Uh, the team was, uh, I think uh, we were down six to four or something with a minute uh, to go. And he, George, was dressed as the backup because, as I say, one of the Hurricane goaltenders was under the weather and didn't dress. So George never thought he'd get into the game, but he did. Uh, he came into the game and uh, spelled off Cam Ward. And uh, the rest is history. He got his little moment in the sun. You know, he was signed uh, to a, 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 dumb, a regular contract. I can't call it a dummy contract, but it was a regular contract earlier that day when it was known that the backup goaltender couldn't uh, play. So he sat on the bench never thinking he'd get into the game. And Bill Peters uh, showed a lot of class by putting him in the net. He said, what the heck, we're down by two goals with a minute left anyway. We're not going to win the game, so put him in. And that was the highlight of that game, despite the loss. And it made George Alvis' uh, life a little brighter, I guess you'd say. Well, here's uh, a small world uh, anecdote for you very quickly. Uh, uh -huh. George Alves went to Stoughton High School here in Massachusetts. and uh, that... Yes, I knew he was a Massachusetts boy. Yeah. I didn't know he was from Stoughton. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's my hometown. And I did uh, games on Stoughton Cable for the Stoughton hockey team for 10 years. And I did many of George's games. Uh, oh. So I know George. I know his brother Ricky as well, and uh, I remember that story when it came out, and we're like, we're like, <laughs> wow, a Stoughton guy makes good. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, small world. It was, it, it really is. Isn't that incredible? I mean, you know George, a tiny guy, a quick, acrobatic. Yeah. Uh, you know, it didn't really have the size uh, or the skill to play even in the American Hockey League, but I wouldn't take any. 
uh, I wouldn't uh, say that's a bad thing. Uh, he's a terrific person, yep. and he's still working with the team right now as an assistant equipment manager. Always has a smile on his face. I saw him a couple of weeks ago on Whaler Day when the uh, Hurricanes played Boston, yep. and it was good to see George. Uh, uh, a great person, but I know he'll never forget uh, the uh, opportunity to play at least one minute in the National Hockey League. Oh, that's great. I'll make sure his former coach gets to hear this as well. Uh, great yeah. stuff. So, uh, Chuck, uh, let's move out to the West Coast for the next one. Uh, Anaheim, California, the Anaheim Ducks, uh, the Honda Center. Uh, you know, that that franchise came into the NHL with a lot of glitz, right, uh, with the Disney theme going on there. Uh, maybe you could reflect on uh, Anaheim and that whole experience there. Yeah, well, unlike Tampa, which was not ready for a uh, – National Hockey League team building-wise, uh, one year later, Anaheim was. And uh, they came into the league, of course, with the Florida Panthers that year, uh, 93-94, and it was a beautiful building. I mean, it was uh, gold-plated uh, hallways and a very uh, palatial building. I always uh, loved it uh, from the standpoint of seeing old friends there as well because right from day one, uh, one of our former scouts and a guy that I broadcast uh, Badger games uh, uh, when he attended the University of Wisconsin, David McNabb, was the uh, assistant general manager of the Ducks. And, of course, he recently retired a couple of years ago. He'd been with the organization after he left our team uh, to go become the assistant general manager in Anaheim. So I always had a great time going into that building just to see David as well. Yeah. And uh, it um, and the uh, Hurricanes uh, and Whalers had uh, quite a lot of success, basically, uh, in that building over the years. So it always conjured up a good feeling. I think we had a, a, a great uh, record in Anaheim, except for the year, probably. And again, Brian Burke's name will come up again, because he was the general manager of the Ducks when they won the Cup the year after the Hurricanes did. Uh, when they wanted to know seven, that was probably the only year uh, and we'd make our once-a-year visit uh, that that uh, the Hurricanes didn't win a game there. They've always seemed to have good success there. I always liked that building. And even though the uh, radio booth was uh, like a small closet, much like Ottawa's uh, old Civic Center that I think we talked about in the last show, uh, it, was a, it was a great place to broadcast a game. And you were a couple of blocks from Disneyland and a couple of blocks from the Angels Stadium. So it was a nice setting and uh, just, again, a beautiful building. Uh, nice, nice part of the country too. I, I had a chance to visit out there myself, and and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, moving back uh, to the East Coast here, Chuck, I got to get your thoughts on the New Jersey Meadowlands, where the uh, Devils play. Uh, they've been in a, a few different arenas. I remember the uh, Brendan Byrne Arena there uh, in East Rutherford. But uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, that New Jersey experience from a broadcaster's perspective. Well, again, yeah, a, a place that started in the Meadowlands uh, in East Rutherford, New Jersey, uh, the Swamplands of Jersey, and uh, I always enjoyed the Brendan Byrne Arena, and I don't know why they did this to us, but the original radio booth was right in the seats at the top of the uh, first concourse along with the writers, and it was always a, a wonderful perspective. You were low enough yet high enough, if you know what I mean, and close yep. enough to the ice where you felt like you were part of the game. And uh, so I enjoyed it. And then when Dale Arnold became the broadcaster, I'm not going to pin this on him, but it was during his regime that somehow uh, the Devils ended up making the decision, and maybe this was Lou Lamorello, maybe it wasn't, uh, to set, put us up into what they called the halo uh, of uh, uh, the uh, Meadowlands Arena. 
and we were so high up uh, that uh, you almost could not discern the numbers. The players looked like ants, basically. Oh, they were way up, and, and we were the only ones up. And I'll never forget doing an interview with Lou Lamorello between periods. The, I, we had to take a you know four-story elevator up to our booth, and we were the only ones up there. This is the thing that I, <laughs> I scratched my head, because TV would always be across the way uh, from our old press box facility and on the other side, on the penalty box side, um, and then, uh, but why we were up there visiting radio and home radio were put up there, and I could never figure it out. And uh, when I asked Lou Lamorello about it, he said, "Well, you're lucky you're in the building." That's <laughs> 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 what he and he said it, of course, jokingly. Uh, I always got along with Lou; he was a good guy because we both had college hockey roots, and he realized that. So, uh, but but then going over, I, I guess that was a foreshadowing, John, to what we now experience. Uh, with the broadcaster's experience at uh, the Prudential Center, because, uh, again, the radio booth is so high up at Prudential Center, you had that same perspective that you had in the halo at the Meadowlands Arena. So nothing much has changed except possibly the neighborhood. Right? Yeah, and uh, I had a good chance to uh, work with John Hennessy, who did some AHL games there for the uh, New Jersey Devils uh, affiliate there, and uh, he's from New Jersey. He told me a lot of great uh, stories about that. One thing about great about New Jersey, right, that stadium is so easy to get to, right? You turn off the New Jersey Turnpike, and you're right there. Oh, yeah, the old Meadowlands Arena was terrific. Yeah, yeah. and the parking situation was great. Unfortunately, the weather would not cooperate. That would have been a perfect place to be able to tailgate. And some people did when the weather was good. But, uh, you know, nothing like the PNC Arena in in, uh, Raleigh, where uh, you can do it almost all year long. But, yeah, in fact, I always wondered what uh, ever happened to John. I remember when he was the Devils announcer, uh, I think it was after Mike Miller, uh, who had suffered some health issues, and uh, John came along. And, uh, yeah, that uh, the Meadowlands building was easily accessible and a lot more accessible than the Prudential Center where we get uh, police uh, uh, guard uh, uh, situations where we uh, get the police escort coming from Short Hills, New Jersey now. Uh, so we get there so we don't get into traffic. Uh, they, they stop traffic for the teams, the visiting teams, who come into the new arena now when they go to Newark. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, John did some time in Hockey East. He was the voice of uh, UMass, and uh, that's how I got to know him. So uh, uh, we've had him on the podcast before as well. Chuck, a, uh, can it, there's one more Canadian city we didn't touch on, and that's Winnipeg. I happen, I happen, I happen to notice that uh, Dan Rusinowski is there right now, and uh, he was glowing over the fact that they served pierogi in the uh, press room. Uh, in Winnipeg. But, uh, Chuck, that's an awfully cold city. Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Jets, this is their second uh, um, go-round as the Winnipeg Jets. I'm sure you have some great stories about visiting there. Right, because they're another team that has two different arenas. I mean, the arena that I was uh, broadcasting games on was the arena that they, uh, the original Winnipeg Jets from the World Hockey Association played against the New England Whalers. And Right. Uh, I, uh, the biggest, uh, and of course that building has now been raised. It's not there anymore. It's near the Polo Park Shopping Center, uh, which is where we used to stay. That's another story. Uh, it was a, a motel that uh, I don't even know. You, you know, you talk about the way players are treated today. When we first went to Winnipeg, we stayed at the Polo Park Inn, which was a motel that had a bowling alley and uh, didn't have very well sealed windows. So that cold air, and there there were many uh, a year 
that uh, we had, you know, 30 below with a wind chill yeah. coming through our hotel room, and you'd crank up the heat in your motel room. This is my first couple of years before we moved to the Viscount Gort, which was another old hotel that the late Emil Francis uh, used to like to stay in, where uh, they had a very interesting restaurant there called Weinberg and Wong's. Oh, wow. They served both. It was a Jewish delicatessen and a Chinese restaurant <laughs> all in one. I mean, you can't write this stuff, John. Oh. I mean, uh, you know, I'm trying to get the flavor of the whole city, not just the arena here to our listeners. Right, but, right. Uh, but the Winnipeg Arena was unique for one major, uh, well, two major things. It was a great perspective right over the ice. I mean, we were in a catwalk similar to the Hartford Civic Center, but we were right over the ice, similar to the press box location in Montreal at uh, the Bell Center. So you'd look right over the ice, and it was a wonderful perspective. And on one side, on the north end of the building, uh, was a about uh, 25 by 20 foot portrait of Queen Elizabeth wow. hanging from the rafters. Wow! Yeah, yeah wow! And and uh, if people remember Jiggs uh, McDonald, who always uh, wore a beard. In fact, I've never seen Jiggs without one. One day on an Islander broadcast that I happened to be watching when we lived in uh, Hartford. They transposed his beard onto uh, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth and showed it in the Highlander pregame show. I don't know if this was an idea that Stan Fischler had when he was doing the pregame show for the Highlanders or not. But they tra- And I just fell off my chair when I saw that. But the Winnipeg <laughs> Arena, you know, it was one of those arenas like Boston Garden. It was not the uh, 200 by 85. It was like Chicago or Buffalo or Boston that would not conform. It seemed to be wider than it was long, and a lot of things happened very quickly there. And the late John Ferguson, who was the general manager when I first started uh, with the Whalers, uh, he was the Jets general manager. He had a box right next door to me, and he'd be yelling and screaming at his players, and it would come on the air, you know, with my crowd noise mic, because we didn't have effects mics back then. Right. So John Ferguson's yelling at his players. He was particularly upset with Morris Lukowicz one night, and uh, he's hurling anathemas at him while I'm trying to do a broadcast, and that's another... uh, memory I have from the old Winnipeg Arena. And, of course, now uh, they're, uh, they're up the street, uh, more toward downtown on Portage Street. And uh, uh, they're now, I think, in the, what it's called the Canada Life Center now. It was the uh, MTS Center before. It was uh, for Manitoba Telephone. Now I think it's the uh, Canada Life Building. It's the same building. Uh, and that's an intimate building, too. It only holds about thirteen or 14,000 people. And it gets really loud in that new arena. And, again, the broadcast uh, location at the new arena in, well, the relatively new arena in Winnipeg since they acquired the Thrashers in 2011 is very, very loud, and the, and the perspective is an excellent one. But the only problem is if the Jets are playing well, you can't hear yourself think it really gets that loud in the arena. Yeah, how happy was uh, the Winnipeg community when they got a team uh, when the Thrashers moved up there? Boy, they were uh, very happy to have a team again. Yeah, they were, and uh, it's uh, – it's a very ironic situation. That's another thing. Uh, the Thrashers used to be in our division uh, with the, uh, the Hurricanes and the Washington Capitals, Tampa Bay, and Florida. That was the old Southeast division. Yeah. So uh, when they did the schedule over for the, uh, the uh, 11-12 season, it was too late. The team moved too late from Atlanta to Winnipeg to change divisions. 
So guess how many trips we had to make to Winnipeg that year. That was when you played eight games against divisional opponents. Wow. So you had four at home and four away. So uh, uh, with an exhibition game that was scheduled to be against Atlanta uh, before they moved, we had five trips, count them, five trips to Winnipeg, Manitoba. Wow. And of those five trips, as I recall, there was only maybe two of those five. We got real lucky. Only two of those five trips came when it was frozen. I mean, January, oh, yeah. February. I think we had a, uh, we had the exhibition game in September. We had a game in October, one in November, and those were palatable weather-wise. And then we had the two in uh, the uh, winter where it was very cold. And then we had, I think, one in late March. So wow. that, and that was uh, passable weather-wise. But, yeah. boy, it gets frigid up there, as everybody knows. But, yeah, we played the Winnipeg Jets five times because they were supposed to be the Atlanta Thrashers, and they were divisional rivals for that one memorable year, the 2011-2012 season. Wow, fascinating stuff. Let's go out to Denver, Colorado, Chuck, the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, I had a chance to go out there with Merrimack on a road trip. We saw an Avalanche game out there, and hockey's been uh, quite popular out there in Colorado, particularly the Avalanche winning the Cup. But uh, I know you've done some games out there, so I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts of the Denver experience. Yeah, there's a couple there. I mean, you got to go back to the Colorado Rockies days, too, uh, John, before yeah. they moved to New yeah. Jersey. I'm, I'm so old that uh, I was in the league when Don Cherry was coaching the Rockies, and uh, McNichol Sports Arena was where they used to play by the Broncos football stadium. And then when they uh, ended up moving to New Jersey, there was no hockey there for a while until the Quebec Nordiques moved uh, in 95 to uh, Denver. And they won an instant Stanley Cup with Joe Sackick and all those Nordique players, basically. And the uh, what was the Pepsi Center, now Ball Arena, uh, is another one of those places that started out from a broadcast perspective excellent and then went downhill. Wow. And the reason was the owner. Uh, it was a wonderful press box situation and a great building to do a game in. And I never lost my breath, uh, you know, so you can say it's hogwash uh, when they put that sign up that you're at 5,280 feet. Right. You walk into that building and you think you're going to lose your breath because of the thin air. Well, it never seemed to bother me. Uh, maybe that's a uh, commentary on me, but uh, uh, it's uh, we had a great press box location, a great radio location until Stan Kroenke decided that he wanted to make almost that entire press box his own suite. Oh, no. And of course, you know, he was the owner of the team. Yeah, he owned the team. He's the same guy that moved the Rams out of St. Louis and they moved them. And, uh, uh, yeah, he, t he takes up a space right now that is probably 55 feet long, uh, you know, of a press box. So we got squeezed. The TV booths all moved near the blue line. Uh, they can do much with them because uh, there's NHL regulations. But when visiting radio and home radio are concerned, we were at the goal line on one end when they, uh, you know, reconfigured the press box several years ago. So I'm going back five, six years ago at least uh, when they made that change. But the arena itself was a, a great place to, to broadcast a game. And easy to uh, uh, access as well being in downtown Denver. Oh, good. Well, I'm sorry that happened. I mean, I've been in <laughs> I've been in situations where I've had to do goal line end broadcasts and certainly they're not ideal. Yeah, no, it's true and well, you know what? Uh, with all due respect to uh, and I have that college hockey background as you do, um, this should not be happening in the National Hockey League. I'm right. sorry. Right. Uh, right. And and we fight this battle 
but uh, we never seem to win it, and it's uh, it's just too bad because, uh, well, hey, it brings out uh, the more talent in uh, the, the broadcasters that have to put up with it, I guess. That's, uh, that's the silver lining, I suppose. Absolutely. We're visiting with Chuck Hayton, former longtime voice of the Hartford Whalers and the Carolina Hurricanes. We're finishing up our three-part series on classic NHL arenas here on Airing It Out Files from Leahy's broadcast booth. Uh, Chuck, uh, the next arena I have on my list here is a fairly new one that I'm, I know you visited with the uh, Hurricanes over in Columbus, Ohio, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Of course, uh, hockey in Ohio began with the Cleveland Barons uh, back in the day, but uh, Columbus has its own franchise now, and uh, the Nationwide Arena is the arena for the Blue Jackets, and uh, I'd love to hear a story, too, about that place. Oh, that place is excellent. It uh, actually is very near and dear to my heart because it's one of the modern arenas that did it right when it came to uh, their broadcast facilities and the facilities uh, overall. Uh, it was the, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first arena to put a practice facility for its major league team within uh, over the roof uh, of, of the regular arena. Uh, wow. I don't think people realize the fact that the Blue Jacket practice facility is right uh, uh, under the same roof and just next door to the main arena. And it makes it very convenient for the players who can just dress in their regular locker room and walk over to their practice rink. As I recall, the only other arena that does that now is Prudential Center. The Devils have a practice facility right in Prudential Center as well. So they uh, kind of uh, took the idea from Columbus, but Columbus was the first one to do that. It's an excellent arena, wonderful sight lines for broadcasters, uh, it was a comfortable place to do a game. The booth was wide enough. Uh, the engineering facilities, the um, well, the entire perspective of that arena was done first class. That's one arena that when they came into the league uh, in 2000 with the Minnesota Wild, did it right. And uh, it, uh, it was one of my favorite places. And, of course, Columbus was in our division uh, when they reformulated uh, the divisions later. Uh, after the Southeast Division, when they added teams, uh, you know, we became a, a team in that division as well when Columbus moved from west to east. And uh, it, was, it was good to visit that two or three times a year as well. Nationwide Arena, excellent, right downtown, easily accessible. Our hotel was right around the corner so you could walk to the game. And uh, it uh, was uh, one of the uh, uh, great places to broadcast a game. And uh, I guess the biggest memory for me, you're asking about memories about Nationwide Arena. Was the draft that year? I drove down from Detroit, where I was visiting uh, my sister and my mom at the time, and uh, with my wife, and we stopped in for the draft. And it was always a very comfortable city to be in. And we actually actually spent a couple of extra days. And a big thrill for me was going out to uh, Dublin, Ohio, to play golf at uh, Jack's Place, where they play the Memorial. So wow, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was really nice to uh, uh, go out there to uh, Mirfield and uh, play a round of golf with a couple of friends that All-Star weekend. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Chuck, we have a, uh, a real old, venerable arena to discuss next, the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island, home of the New York Islanders. i got to tell you, Chuck, I've been everywhere in New York except for Long Island. That's the only part of New York I've never been to. Of course, the Islanders, <laughs> what can you say, uh, uh, the, the dynasty years with Bossy and uh, Nystrom and Tonelli and Gillies and uh, uh, an old building, the Nassau Coliseum, and uh, I, I'm, I can't wait to hear your stories on that place. Oh, yeah, 
that was uh, a, a real uh, iconic building for me. I know a lot of people didn't like it. They thought it was called the Nassau Mausoleum and it needed to be upgraded. And, of course, Islanders don't play there anymore. But for me, it was one of my favorite places uh, to go uh, in the NHL. Two stories there. One was in uh, the 82-83 uh, season. Uh, actually, 81-82 season was the first time when, uh, for the first time ever, the uh, Hurricane, the Whalers defeated the Islanders on home ice. It took them four years to win a game there, and uh, the particulars were that there was a major snowstorm in New England, and we had to take a bus to Long Island uh, the day of the game. It was that bad. Wow. We uh, are trying to uh, get up. Uh, a an incline on an icy uh, exchange, the interchange, to get onto the Long Island Expressway. Once they did open uh, the uh, the uh, highways, we had to stay overnight at the Westchester Country Club, where Doug Sullivan was a member. He was one of our players, and we had to room at the uh, Westchester Country Club hotel. And they didn't believe we were coming. We tried to start out the night before the game got snowed in, they closed all the bridges. We couldn't get on the island, so we had to stay overnight at Westchester. And But we didn't bring our goaltender, Greg Millen. He didn't come with us because his wife was uh, expecting their first child and was due any day. Oh, wow. So they let him stay home. So he didn't have to endure any of that. She had the baby that night. He came in a limousine and played the game of his life, and we beat the Islanders four to two. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, and, and with that team that you're talking about, the uh, that would have been the third Stanley Cup year for them. Okay, with pa- Bossy Trache, Potvin, right, Billy Smith, the Chigoris. You go right down the the list. Kenny Morrow, and I mean, and, and nobody thought that they would win it. Well, the problem was for the Islanders, they had to shovel their driveways and they were exhausted. They had more trouble getting to the arena for that game. We pulled in at 5 o'clock for a 7 o'clock game and half the Islander players weren't even there yet. Wow. Wow. And so you can imagine it was probably tougher for them to drive to the Coliseum than it was for us and Moss being on the bus. Right. Even though we had our uh, travails getting to the arena with a bus driver can't go up an incline. We had to get out and push the bus to get it moving to get out of the LIE. And, uh, but it was a great experience. It just goes to show that when you're together in adverse times, the visiting team really does have the advantage there. So uh, that was one uh, memory for me. And the other one was I did a neutral game in that building back in 1991. Oh, wow. Uh, it was a tr- Toronto Maple Leaf. Uh, New York Islander game. They, I was at uh, my son's hockey practice, 3.30 in the afternoon, when I get a call at home. Now, there's no cell phones. My wife's at home. I'm with my son at the practice. And uh, she comes running with my suit and tie to the rink, to the practice where, where my kid practiced. And she says, you've yeah. got to go to Nassau Coliseum immediately. I said, what are you talking about? She said, some guy named Ed Milliken, who was the producer for Hockey Night in Canada back then, it says, you've got to get to that game. They need you to broadcast on uh, the uh, Leafs television network tonight with Harry Neal as your color man. Wow. I said, what? And then so she said, yes, just call this number right now. So I made a toll-free call uh, to him, 
or reverse the charges back then, and he took the call at the hotel. He says, well, can you get here by game time? And it was a a two-and-a-half-hour drive. He says, well, can you get here for rehearsal, like a half hour before? I says, I'll try. So I jumped in my car, and what had happened was the regular announcer, Joe Bowen, who is still the Leafs radio guy now, was fogged in in Toronto. They would never let the uh, announcers travel with the Leafs back then. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so he had to fly commercials. So he tried flying in the day of the game, and they were fogged in. Uh, in Toronto, so they tried to get Joe on a flight, but the, the weather didn't cooperate in Toronto. He couldn't find a flight to New York, so they had to, they, they scrambled around. And Ed Milliken, for some reason, thought about me, called me, and I went and did the game cold with Harry Neal. Wow! It was a big thrill. I still have the tape of that game, and so that was my one neutral site NHL or neutral team uh nhl broadcast and it was at nassau coliseum i pulled in by the way john at six thirty. wow for seven o'clock i i was going well i hope no police people are listening and there's a statute of limitations on this i was probably going 80 or 85 down the freeway <laughs> just to get there because i got there in record time it usually takes uh two and a half hours maybe without traffic i got there in about an hour 40 well about two hours with traffic so I was sweating it out because they were—they didn't know what to do. They didn't have a play-by-play guy, and of course Harry Neal was the happiest guy to see me because uh, he had never done hockey in his life. And as he told me, uh, uh, I saved his life because nobody would have uh, uh, watched that game uh, if he would have done it. He said, "Well, anyway, uh, it was a wonderful experience, and it—it'll uh, 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 be a memory that I'll never forget." And that actually occurred in Nassau Coliseum back. Uh, oh. How were the uh, broadcast uh, facilities, the setup, location, et cetera? Oh, it was excellent. I mean, now TV was down in the stands, but you were low, and you had a great perspective on the game. Uh, nobody bothered you. The fans were actually pretty good, which, you know, I guess if I was doing Ranger games, maybe not the case. But uh, in this case, with the Leafs, uh, it was a great facility. And the radio facility is also good up in, in the catwalk area of uh, those old buildings had, uh, as you know, with Boston Garden and with Olympia and with all the original six buildings and some of the older buildings like the old Odd in Buffalo, uh, the, the broadcast locations were excellent. Today, they, they just seem to be all over the place. And you're very lucky, as I said, with a nationwide arena in Columbus uh, situation, you're lucky if a modern arena has uh, a, a good sight line now. You're either too high or too far away from the ice today. Awesome. Uh, next uh, one I have here, Chuck, is Nashville, uh, the Nashville Predators. I had a chance to go down there and do a couple of games with Merrimack. We played a, uh, Alabama-Huntsville in a tournament down there. We also got to see the Predators play uh, the day before we uh, did our game there. I remember being at the top of the arena sort of in a, uh, on, a, uh, on a bench uh, near the right. near the. Uh, uh, the suite up there. So uh, I know you've been there lots of times, uh, and I'm going to be in Nashville the end of next week on vacation. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that town and the arena. Yeah, you know the that arena, and I think we alluded to it earlier, John, about how it was built, hoping for a uh, major tenant, preferably hockey, because they put an ice plant in there, and they didn't get it. Uh, the rumor was New Jersey was planning on moving to Nashville, and everybody thought that was preposterous anyway at the time. Uh, but in 1998, they got their team. Uh, and uh, that building, when I walked into it, I said, this is the oldest-looking new building I've ever seen <laughs> <Yeah>. in my life. <laughs> right? 
Yeah. I mean, it kind of in some ways reminded me of the odd in Buffalo with the colors, you know, that Nashville has are similar to the Sabres. And uh, I think that uh, – and when you're talking about being up on a bench up on the top of the stands, you're right. There isn't really a radio and television level. You're just right. at a table, uh, and uh, behind you is the electrical uh, uh, control room for the whole building, for the lights and for all uh, the PA system and everything. So you're high, uh, uh, but you're also at center ice, so it's a decent perspective. But I also always call, call Bridgestone Arena the oldest new arena I ever saw. It looked like it was 20 years old when it was built. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was I think it was built in 19, if I'm not mistaken, it was built somewhere in 96, a couple of years before the Predators came into the NHL. But it shouldn't have looked like that. Now, they've had other things in there, like concerts, tons of country concerts. And, of course, uh, they had uh, uh, the uh, country music awards are are done there. uh, And the Predators have to go out of town, just like the circus comes to Boston once in a while. And they, you know, have to leave uh, TD Garden. Right. But the bottom line is it's a decent place, uh, as you know, with your experience. Not great. But uh, at least it was downtown. It's just it's right on Broadway, which is the main east-west drag in, in Nashville that's so celebrated for all the honky-tonks and all the, uh, uh, the young men and women that are trying to get into the country music business. And so it's a vibrant area, but the building itself, Eh, I would I would say it's average. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of had the same perspective. But you know, uh, from a college hockey play by play perspective, hey, you're in an NHL arena, right? That's what made it special uh, for me. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I could totally understand that. And it's not that I hate the place because it's easily accessible. You walk around, but they don't. Um, it really not one of my favorite places uh, to broadcast from. Although it was a it was a nice destination place to visit with people that I, I really liked, like some of my colleagues, like Pete Weber, uh, Terry Crisp. Uh, those individuals uh, made it uh, a lot nicer to come uh, to Nashville, homier, and you were really welcomed. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, good place to go to broadcast a game. All right, Chuck, and uh, we're winding up here. Only a couple more. I've got Arizona. Right. I've got Arizona on my list here. The uh, Coyotes in a strange situation now. They have uh, a, an arena that uh, they share with Arizona State University, but uh, you know they moved out of their their old original arena. And I know you had a chance to go out there with the Hurricanes. So, uh, how about a story or two about Arizona? Well, Arizona, you know, I loved the old arena. I could never understand other than where it was put uh, geographically in the city. I could never understand why people didn't like uh, what used to be called, remember, Jobbing.com Arena. Yes, yes. (laughs) And then, of course, uh, it became a Gila River Arena and uh, all the – and they put a nice complex of shops. I don't know how that didn't work uh, other than – uh, one day, I tried to take an Uber ride from Scottsdale to Glendale, and it took me an hour and a half. Wow! And then I found out, oh my gosh, this is. The, and it was an off day. We went to a restaurant in uh, uh, Trip Tracy, who's the uh, television color man for the Hurricanes, and I went over to uh, eat uh, at a steakhouse in Scottsdale. Tried to come back to Glendale, where our hotel was right next door to Jobbing dot com Arena, and uh, it took us an hour and a half to get you know, maybe 20, 15 or 20 miles. Wow. So, you know, that, that was the problem with Glendale. It's, it's proximity to the city of Phoenix. Uh, 
Now, uh, you know, it's going to be a hearsay thing for me. I've only heard, uh, uh, well, good and bad things about the Arizona State Arena, uh, Mullet Arena, named after Barry Melrose's hairdo, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I hear that the broadcast location is low, but it's not great. And again, it's inside the blue line. But uh, it's a very loud arena. I know that the uh, Coyotes play very well at home there. And uh, they're by the looks of it, uh, John, they're going to have to play there at least another two years and possibly another third year uh, because of what's going on uh, in terms of building a new arena and, a, and a, an entertainment complex uh, there. So, uh, yeah, I always enjoyed Arizona. Now, we can't forget America West Arena either right, because that was right. where I started cutting my teeth when the uh, uh, original Jets moved uh, to uh, Phoenix uh, back in that, uh, what was it, the 95-96 season? 96-97 season. It was the 96-97 season because three WHA teams left in three consecutive years. Quebec moved in 95 um, Winnipeg moved in 96, and, of course, we moved in 97 to Raleigh. So in that 96-97 season at America West Arena and the next few years as a hurricane broadcaster, I uh, I had to sit on telephone books because you were right. You were only about 10 rows up at America West, so you could hardly see over the glass and the fans. When they stood up, you couldn't see. Wow. And, of course, being a basketball arena for the Suns at the time, uh, one end of the ice, overhung the uh, the net. So if you had seats uh, behind one of the nets, you couldn't see the near net Wow! Uh, from the angle. So, But I won't spend too much time with America West, but basically the uh, jobbing, do- that other, the arena in Glendale, whether you call it jobbing.com, Gila River, whatever, uh, that was the best arena, and it's uh, so sad that it's a white elephant right now. Yeah, that is sad indeed. Uh, Chuck, I feel like we should touch on Atlanta just a little bit because we talked about the Winnipeg uh, the uh, Winnipeg uh, Jets who moved from Atlanta uh, to Winnipeg. Of course, the Atlanta Flames uh, were uh, born in the 70s. They played down at the Omni down there in Atlanta. They went over to Phillips Arena. Uh, I imagine Atlanta was a unique place to call hockey. Yes, and uh, when you're talking about the Omni and Phillips Arena, people should realize that's the same site. Because what happened was that the Omni was built uh, on the same site that now Phillips Arena is. Okay. And, yeah. uh, I never, yeah, I never realized that until about a year after we got to Atlanta the second time around. But since they're in the same venue, I've got different memories about it. The, the original Omni building was a uh, an excellent perspective once again we were in the seats halfway up the first concourse but there was a bad side to that too because they put me on the end of the row uh where people could walk up the aisle right next to me and listen to me broadcast the game and it didn't take very long for them to know that i was the visiting broadcaster for right. the whalers yeah in 79 in fact uh my second trip to atlanta was the uh, day that the U.S. beat Russia uh, at the Olympics in Lake Placid. So uh, that next night, that next Saturday night, we were in Atlanta. I was flying to Atlanta, and I got so upset at the uh, – you remember the game was tape delayed on ABC back then. Right. We were flying down to Atlanta for that game, 
And the pilot went on and spoiled my day by telling me who won the game. Oh, you boy. Know, uh, yeah. yeah. I was the only one on the airplane that was uh, was upset when he made the announcement. Everybody else is cheering wildly, yeah. well, they should, at the U.S. beating Russia. But I wanted to watch the game, so it killed my night. But anyway, that next day got worse because I'm setting up my equipment. I didn't have an engineer there, so I'm sitting on the end of the row. And the Whalers are beating uh, Atlanta 5-4. to four. Minute left. They pull the goaltender. Hurricane, or they, well, I keep saying hurricanes. The Whalers score an empty netter to solidify the win 6-4. to four. So now everybody's making a rush to the exits. And one guy particularly was lit up uh, with a little bit of alcohol, reached under my uh, table and pulled my broadcast lines out. Oh, you know, we no. were using phone lines back then. Yeah. yeah so wow. I'm in the middle of a sentence, and he pulls out the line, and now I'm off the air. Wow. You know, just after they made it six to four, and people are wondering, now I'm scrambling. Now an usher tr- grabs the guy. And I'm just trying to get back on the air again, and my engineer back at home is saying, "What happened? How do we lose contact right at the, you know, the crescendo of the game?" And I told him what happened, and I'll never. And that happened in the Omni. Now, when we moved to Phillips Arena, we were up on a higher level, right over the ice. It was an excellent perspective. I and mean, if you know anything about Phillips Arena, they have boxes on one side, seats on the other. We were on the box side. It was a very unique building when they uh, resurrected the Omni and called it Phillips, Phillips Arena on the same site. They put skyboxes on one side, John, of that building. Oh, wow. The press box and skyboxes were on one side. There were only about 20 rows of seats that would come up to the skybox levels, and they were stacked, you know, three sets of uh, skyboxes, and we were at the top level with the press box. Wow. On one side, it was a very unique setup there uh, as far as uh, arena design. And, of course, uh, short-lived was their existence, too. I think they lasted, what, 12 years, right, from 99 to 2011. But it was a good building. The Phillips Arena was a great building to work in. Uh, We had always great facilities, excellent sight lines. And, again, that was a building that we would go into four times a year because Atlanta was in our division. I think it was actually three times a year by the time they got in because they were the extra team in the Southeast Division once the expansion took place that year. They put them into our division. So it was great to go to Atlanta three times a year, too, because it was a a wonderful city to visit as well as to broadcast in. Awesome, Chuck. Well, before I let you go, I just want to get a couple of quick thoughts on the the two newest uh, NHL cities, uh, Seattle and Las Vegas. Boy, Vegas is quite the boon now. Uh, uh, It's becoming quite the sports town with the the Las Vegas Raiders out there now. They have a AAA minor league baseball team. Uh, The Vegas Golden Knights, of course, went to the uh, Stanley Cup Finals uh, against Washington in their first year and also of course now up in seattle uh with the kraken so maybe a quick uh, a few quick thoughts on those two uh, cities well i broadcast in one and i almost broadcast in another but i did visit it uh the oh, one do I tell. broadcast in uh, yeah the, the uh one i broadcast in was vegas and uh, did one game there and that's when cam ward uh, the hurricane goaltender won his 300th game in the nhl overtime victory uh, great perspective. Uh, we're up high. Uh, they really put on a show there with all of their uh, in-arena entertainment that's as glitzy as a Las Vegas show. So I really enjoyed the one game I did there uh, back in the 17-18 season. Uh, and then uh, as far as Seattle's concerned, 
uh, had a, uh, a, a thought or two about moving there and, and working there, but decided not to. And then, but we visited the arena. I mean, thanks to uh, their uh, uh, president Todd Lywicki, who was a terrific individual. Uh, my oldest son is a season ticket holder there. Lives in Seattle with his wife and our granddaughter. And uh, two summers ago, uh, we were given a tour of the arena. And I went into all of the areas where the locker rooms were, where the seats were going to be. My son got to actually see where his seats were going to be. And they were about 80% done with the arena the time we were there, uh, I think in July of 21. And uh, it was it was fun to see that arena in downtown. Now, uh, from what I'm told, it's a tough one to get to because of the traffic. But it's a beautiful arena that has two scoreboards, basically. Wow. Uh, they have two hanging scoreboards with video boards. So that in itself is very unique. There's there's one in each zone. Uh, they're like triangular, okay, wow. so everybody gets to see. Yeah, it's an excellent. And uh, so Climate Pledge Arena, and you know the story behind that. Uh, that was the old uh, arena where the Sonics used to play, and uh, they uh, basically lifted the roof and built downward. So it has the original uh, iconic uh, designed roof, but it has got a modern uh, building that goes about 50 feet underground. Wow. Uh, so what an engineering uh, feat that was. So that's why it took them about two and a half years to build that building, John, because it, uh, uh, it, it was very unique. And it's a beautiful building. The, the press box level is high, uh, but not any higher than any of the other ones we talked about. Probably like Dallas, it's probably like uh, a little lower than New Jersey's, the halo that I was talking about, and now Prudential Center. So, but it's a great arena to watch a game, and the fans are very enthusiastic. And guess what? Ronnie Francis, the former Hurricane and Whaler, has that team in the playoffs right now. They're playing great in only their second season. So well, it's going to be interesting to see what they do in the playoffs. Yeah, and their coach, of course, is Dave Haxtall, who uh, had great success at North Dakota in the NCAA. And then, of course, he went on to Philadelphia to coach the Flyers for a bit. But, uh, yeah, yeah, great great times out in Seattle. They've got the rivalry with Vancouver now, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad to see uh, that. Well, Chuck, we've hit every uh, city on the list. Uh, what a what great fun it's been, you know, uh, reminiscing with you and getting uh, your your broadcast perspective on all these cities. If you if you missed any of the first two episodes, by the way, uh, our audience, you can go to the website and there's a search bar. Just type in Chuck Hayton and it'll pull up all three of the episodes that we've done. So if you want to hear your favorite city, uh, you can check it out in one of the previous episodes. Chuck, we're out of time. I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I, I look forward to, to having you back on down the road, and uh, I also look forward to hopefully meeting you uh, at some point. Perhaps uh, if you visit Connecticut, we can uh, get together for a beer, and uh, I would really uh, love to have the chance to meet you, and uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. My pleasure, John. I feel like I know you very well. Uh, you're an excellent interviewer. I know you're a great hockey man that loves your job, so it's been a, a tremendous pleasure for me. Uh, to be on uh, all three of those podcasts. And, yeah, let's do it again sometime, maybe during the playoffs, whatever you want. Absolutely. You're, you're on my A-list, Chuck, and uh, we'll definitely have you back. Uh, next week on the podcast, we're going to talk to an author, Joshvina Shah. She wrote, co-wrote a book called uh, Game Misconduct. It's about uh, the culture in hockey and some of the uh, problems that the game has uh, faced. And uh, we are going to talk to her next week. So for my guest, Chuck Caton, I'm John Leahy. Thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's broadcast, and we will talk to you next week.
Hello, hockey fans. I'm Dan Rusinowski. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Incorporated is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.